At a time when investors are confronted with market volatility and a variety of challenges fueled by the uncertainty of inflation, unsettled geopolitical tensions, and economic pressures, Justin Klein and Steve Peasley stand ready to take your finance and investment questions and share their unbiased answers. This is Invest Talk, independent thinking, shared success. Invest Talk is made possible by KPP Financial, a registered investment advisor firm serving clients throughout the United States. The clarity for your path forward starts now. Here is KPP Chief Executive Officer, Financial Advisor, Justin Klein. Good afternoon, fellow investors, and welcome back to Invest Talk. This is our Thursday, September 28th, 2023 edition. We have one more day left in the quarter, and it is a Thursday. Therefore, we have Luke Guerrero with us. Thanks for being here, Luke. Thanks for having me on this very special Thursday. Very special Thursday. Like you said, it's, like I said, it's uh, the now one more day left in the quarter. So a lot to talk about, a lot to accomplish during this hour. And our goal here is to give you the data and perspective you need to make smart decisions with your money and help you take that next step in your journey. It's always a journey. We're all on a journey to learn more, get better at this because there's new, da new data coming in. And uh, if you don't utilize that data effectively, then you are going to fall behind. And so we're trying to keep you ahead of the curve. And our we're going to get to our market performance of the day. We're going to run down some show topics. But first, we're going to pivot to our first caller question right now at 888-99 chart. Hey, Stephen Justin. My name is Andy from Florida. I would like to get your take on Chewy, C-H-W-Y. Uh, I do own them at a little higher prices than where it is now. I know it's been on a downtrend. I uh, like your take on to hold it or just take the loss and move on. I uh, really appreciate your show. Thank you so much. All right. Looking at Chewy, this is the largest e-commerce retailer in the pet care industry. And it has a lot of sales, about $10 billion in sales last year. It was acquired. It was founded in 2011. It was acquired by PetSmart and then went public again in 2019. And this is down huge from its high. Let's see, where did it peak out at? About $120 per share. Now we're at $18 per share, so down 90%. And this is one of those growth names that everyone kind of fell in love with, with the potential growth of e-commerce and the fact that people are pretty sticky when it comes to buying pet food and, and pet supplies. And Chewy was good at getting new customers, but they weren't great at making it super profitable. Now, the good thing is now they are profitable after many years of losing money. And probably a lot of that is the fact that they just had to. They couldn't just continue to issue more and more shares. But I think that serial issuing of shares throughout the years and burning capital uh, is kind of coming back to bite them. And they still continue to, to issue shares, just maybe not at the same pace as they were before. Um, so that's your issue here. Luke, do you think that $19 is cheap enough at this price? You know, I have seen, I am seeing some improvement in terms of cash flow, which is certainly a good sign. But for me, this is still one of those companies that's a falling knife. It is positive, but it looks like they could have some earning shrinkage over the next six quarters. It's not a point at which I would buy this name, and I might even consider taking the loss. Yeah, the, the only thing that make me, makes me say, 
you know, you might be capitulating with everybody else is if you look at the volume this month, it has been extremely high almost every single day. Uh, now I would say extremely high, but above average every single day. And there's already this month, let me go to a monthly chart. You're approaching the highest level of volume ever in one particular month. And I guess we have, I guess we have one, uh, one more trading day tomorrow. Um, but that's kind of telling me at least near term that capitulation is there is there uh maybe this is an institution that's dumping shares i'm not sure but it's been very consistent throughout this entire month you had a nice update today on good volume and so technically i think it's actually improving if you look at the free cash flow too it's it's now pretty pretty positive it's 339 million an all-time high in the trailing 12 months on a market cap of only 77.8 billion that's a free cash flow yield somewhere around the four percent range that's pretty good i i wouldn't say it's screaming by or anything like that um they don't have any debt in their balance sheet but that's because they're serial issues of shares so from a technical perspective i do think there's probably a near-term bounce because of that capitulation but long term, I still don't think it's at a price that makes me get excited about the name. This probably needs to be in the single digits for me to me to say, okay, oh, it's cheap and 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 worth uh, the 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 price you're paying for it. So I would probably wait for a bounce and sell into that strength. I agree. This is part of the market that typically does not do well in the long term, which is those small growthy names that are mm -hmm. just low profitability. Yeah, like you said, low prof is not where you want to be in this market. All right, now we have a lot of ground to cover in the next 45 minutes. In time permitting, we're going to focus on the main focus point, which is buying or renting. What is the best option in today's market? We're going to look at 50 different U.S. metros and how many of them does it make sense to buy versus rent. We're also going to touch on the consumer and the fact that we all know during the pandemic, people stopped spending because they couldn't spend on a lot of things, especially going out to dinner, traveling, et cetera. And they also got checks from the government that helped consumer balance sheets in a big way. And the big question for investors, economists, the Fed, et cetera, is how much of that dry powder do they have left to support the economy, support spending? So we're going to look at that data. Also, crude is now above $96 per barrel, WTI. And what does that mean for the global economy? So we're going to look at that story. And then lastly, investors are starting to wake up to the fact that rates are going to be higher for longer. So we're going to touch on how the market is reacting to that. And I like all these because they kind of all tie together in a big way, which we'll talk about a little bit later. We also have some voice bank questions that we're going to get to one is in regards to capital federal finance cffn and advance six asix we also have an itunes review question to get to on top of all of that so let's talk about the market today yesterday we had uh, we were down pretty decently earlier in the day and we had a bit of reversal and we had a nice follow through to the upside today. Large caps up about two thirds of 1%. Small caps did the best after also doing the best yesterday. They were up about 1%. Are we getting a follow through, Luke, that says maybe we're at least at a near term bottom for the markets? Potentially, I think the issue that you have is essentially this was a, a some, some rally after a couple of days of a pretty large drawdown, right? And 
most of that can be attributed to the oversold conditions, rate mm-hmm. stabilization. And I would say in the near term, the problem is that October is is more or less a catalyst vacuum. There's nothing really that's going to happen through mid-October that could break markets towards the upside. So what I would expect to happen is have some sort of uh, bouncing up and down, up and down, sideways action through at least mid-October. I don't see anything on the horizon that could break what we've been seeing in this trend. Well, and especially if we had that government shutdown, uh, we talked about this earlier in office, that that's going to shut down a lot of economic reports that will come out that might move the market as well. So uh, the market might be flying blind for a little while until those reports pick back up. Uh, it seems like we're going to not get much after the jobs data next Friday. Yeah, that's correct. So most people don't realize when the government shuts down, it's not just federal employees that are furloughed, but for financial markets, all the data that they rely on regarding retail sales or CPI, something we all talk about month after month in this inflationary environment, none of that can can happen. So uh, not only are markets going to be flying blind if the if the shutdown is prolonged and federal employees aren't going to be paid, the Fed is also going to be flying blind in their rate decision in November. So hopefully that's brief, and uh, I think that would be best for everybody. Yeah, and it looks like the the market, like I said, did get some follow through. I, I could easily see the market uh, getting an oversold bounce here, and it'll be interesting to see how much how many how much legs that gets because uh, you know what, what the big tell will be. Can we get above kind of the pre-Fed announcement levels on the markets? Uh, we had we had a big leg lower since then. I won't say big, for a modest leg lower. A lot of people would consider it big. Uh, we're down what five percent or so from those levels. Correct. Not nothing crazy, um, but that'll be an interesting tell to see. Okay, are we just getting this oversold bounce and then we roll back over into the holiday season or? With volume so high over the past couple of days, is that uh, marking a near-term low? Well, here's the problem. Sometimes being oversold can lead to being more oversold. Yeah, exactly. And and those bounces are just that. They're just bounces. All right. Now we go, we're going to a break, but let us remind you of our new Talk Classroom series, which you can find right now over on our YouTube channel. Episode 8 is titled, How to Gauge the U.S. Economy. We talk about how to not follow the headlines and focus on various indicators that will tell you about where the economy is going so that you can invest through the windshield, not the rearview mirror. So learn more about how to gauge the U.S. economy by heading over to YouTube and searching Invest Talk Classroom. Now, our phone lines are open waiting for your questions at 888-99-CHART. When listener questions are played on the Invest Talk podcast, how do you guys determine a value stock? The caller voices are amplified many thousands of times. Just wanted to get your opinion on JP Morgan and BAC. How do you see this uh, looking forward? I'm 25 years old and have a question about retirement funds. And the unbiased answers from Justin Klein. That's why it's trading so cheap because there's a lot of regulatory risk. And Steve Peasley. I, I kind of like it here. If I was going to buy Tyson Food, this is where I'd buy it. Benefit the entire Invest Talk community. Thank you for what you guys do. That's why 24 7, rain or shine, no matter how simple or how complex, your questions make a difference. Symbol BKE, what's your outlook? And Invest Talk is made better by the power of you. So don't forget to call 888 99 Chart. Everybody wants a secure financial future. 
But getting there takes strategy, discipline, and the right information. That means you'll have finance and investment questions. Justin Klein is ready to provide his unbiased answers. So don't forget to call InvestTalk, 888-99-CHART. Let's go talk to Kenny. He is out in New York. He wants to talk about CBOE, Global Markets. Do you own it or are looking to buy it? Uh, looking to buy it. Uh, I follow another stock that's uplisting off the pink sheets. Uh, mm-hmm. Justin, you'd probably hate it, but it's called Abex Technologies. And everyone was expecting them to uplist to NYSE, NASDAQ, and lo and behold, they announced they're going to upload to SIBO, uh, who's starting this new uh, global listing program. So that's kind of how it came on my radar. Okay. And why would I hate ABEX? Uh, pink sheet stock, no revenue, uh, reverse split to get listed, et cetera. I see. Okay. Um, so are you, getting, are, you, are you looking to get uh, an understanding of CBOE or, or ABEX? Uh, CBOE. So that's how it came onto my radar. Um, oh, I see. Got it. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I mean, C- CBOE, it is a provider of market infrastructure, tradable products. And, you know, it's a it's, business is, is very sound, uh, especially in the world where uh, forex trading, a lot of forex trading is, is happening and, and volatility within the forex markets, especially in a, the geopolitical situation. Uh, and their business is very sound and consistently growing year after year, pretty much. Earnings this year is supposed to be $7.31, up 5% from last year, 1.4% dividend yield, trading at about a 20 times forward-looking earnings at $156 per share. But, you know, I, I like the technicals. You have a relative strength at 90. That's, that's very good. Uh, Luke, do you think it's a little stretch, though, valuation-wise? It might be a little stretch valuation-wise, and you could want to wait a little bit for it to come down. But I think, generally speaking, the theme here is good, which is, especially in times where there's some economic uncertainty, the firms that provide the infrastructure for trading within the financial sector mm-hmm. are a good investment. Your CBOEs, your CMEs, those types of businesses. So I think you're on the right track there. And very minimal debt, strong balance sheet here. Great Good, margins. Yeah, great margins. You know, their free cash flow yield is only about 3%, which is, you know, not amazing, but uh, their their business is solid and consistent. So uh, I like their profitability return equity right about 19%. Uh, and historically, it's uh, it's even higher than that. So uh, I, I would say I give this a thumbs up, even though, you know, it is a bit overbought in the near term. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for. All right. All right. We're going to go to Rutash in San Jose. Wants we'll to talk about Bank of America. Hey, Justin and Luke. Thank you for uh, taking my question. I appreciate all you guys' help. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, I just had a question about Bank of America. Uh, I know you guys don't like the regionals because uh, of the uh, macro. Uh, but uh, a bank like a Bank of America, which is trading below its book value, uh, what are your guys' opinion on? Is a good entry point? Uh, I'm, like towards, uh, I'm, I'm a no on, on almost all the banks at this point. Uh, too many of them have long-duration assets that they bought pre-pandemic at low rates. And yes, the BTFD will, is helping them uh, deal with some of those long-duration assets, like the treasuries that they own. Uh, but it's increasing their cost of... Uh, of capital, of, of deposits, and you know, have to pay more to, for deposits as well. So their profitability in many uh, respects are getting are getting uh, squeezed. Yeah, right. I agree. All right, we're heading to a break, so give us a call at 888-99-CHART. 
One of the most rewarding things I do each weekday is host the Invest Talk podcast. I truly enjoy helping investors, and I know that every question counts and every answer I provide will be unbiased. You, the caller, get to chart the course for each Invest Talk podcast. Call with your questions anytime, day or night, 888 99Chart. Our now focus point today looks in the story behind this question, which is the best option in 2023, buying or renting? And what's interesting about the new data is that affordability continues to plumb to new lows in the housing market pretty much across the country. In only three of the 50 metro areas, does it now make more sense to buy than rent? Or is it cheaper, at least, let's just say that, cheaper to rent than buy, uh, or ch- cheaper to buy than rent? What am I trying to say? In only three of the 50 metro areas, is it cheaper is to it buy, cheaper to buy than rent? <laughs> there we go. That's what I was trying to say. Now, uh, renting has become a bit more attractive. It's a little cheaper. In August, down 0.5% year over year. So at least rents have stopped growing. And I do think that is going to get worse here because we are at a record number of multifamily units being built today in history. So there's a lot of new supply that's going to come on market in the, in, in, uh, in the rental market. And whereas in the existing home market, new supply is not coming on board. Uh, it's very minor coming from those new home builders for the most part, you're actually seeing existing home supply decline year over year. I tend to agree with you, but I would say that that effect may be localized. And I think that it is, after, it is very, I'm talking about generally yes. true after the pandemic, right? You have people that don't have to be concentrated in large metro areas. So myself living in downtown Los Angeles, we've seen a pretty large decrease in rents year over year. Mm-hmm. So we love the place myself and my girlfriend where we live, but we still want to look for other locations just because the opportunities to rent for better places at cheaper are out there, especially in cities where people may have left because now they can work remotely. Yeah. And if you think of what we talk about a lot on the show is long duration assets versus short duration assets, a home and locking yourself into a mortgage is a long duration asset. Whereas a 12 month lease or 15 month lease, whatever you you sign, that's a short duration asset. So things can move and you can take advantage of those lower prices for, uh, for renting. And I think it still makes a lot of sense in this market to be very patient. This is what I tell clients all the time when they call me, they ask me, should I buy, should I rent? I say, if it checks all the boxes and you know you can afford it and you have very high confidence in your job and it, it is a place that you know five years from now, seven years from now, 10 years from now, you're very happy being there, then go for it. But if you're you know, kind of wishy-washy on it, you don't want to wake up two years from now and say, you know what, I really don't like this place. The things that bothered me initially are now huge problems, and now I'm underwater. I think the problem is that the boomer generation purchased houses and saw that, quote, air quote, investment grow to a ridiculous degree in their lifetimes. And so for a lot of people that are looking to enter the housing market, they think of buying a house as an investment first and not a place to live. Mm-hmm. And I think you should think of it as a place to live because what happened the over the past... The of it. Exactly. What happened over the past 50 years in the housing market isn't something that is normal. And it's not going to happen again. Correct. You're not, you're not going to get mortgage rates to drop 1,700 basis points. Correct. Right? From when, 20% all the way to three. Absolutely. When my parents were looking for houses, 
they could save up for a year and then have that pay for more than the down payment on a house. Because if you looked at the monthly cost of a house relative to the median income, it was reasonable. That's not the case anymore. So I do agree with you, unless it is a place that you love and it checks all the boxes, don't do it. And also be aware of what the cost of ownership really means. Yeah, it's not just the mortgage. It's all the other things. my toilet breaks, I call someone to fix it from the building. (laughs) If if someone else does who owns a home, they got to do it themselves. Yeah, or call somebody. Now, uh, in 47 of the 50 largest U.S. metro areas, the average monthly cost of buying a starter home, it's a starter home, in August was $2,959. 64% higher than the cost of renting. That's $1,776. And the area where it rose, the, the unaffordability rose the most, Austin, Texas. It went, a, a starter home there now costs $3,946, 136% more than the monthly rent at $2,276. So that's probably the worst place to be buying. It would be Austin, Texas. Then you add the, kind of the demographics of, uh, of the tech industry. And San Jose was second on that list. In August of this year, renting a home, starter home in San Jose, cost, or buying a home was $3,214. And it would have saved you, sorry, that was renting. The, the cost to, to buy a starter home is $1,964 more than that number. So it's extremely expensive in this. So those are probably the two worst markets in the country for buying a home. And there are only three that are better to buy than rent. And that is Memphis, Tennessee, Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and Birmingham, Alabama. Now, I know you like Pittsburgh. I think I would like Pittsburgh. You think you would like Pittsburgh. I've never been there. I see. But I looked at photos on Google before (laughs) this, and they were beautiful. I have a very good friend who's from Pittsburgh, so uh, he loves it. And he doesn't live there anymore, though. He lives in Columbus, Ohio. But... Uh, but uh, you know, those are the three Metro markets that it, it does make sense. And so if you're trying to answer that question, which is, is it better to buy or rent right now? I would say rent, especially because rent inflation is now likely negative, especially if you look at kind of near term, near term statistics from Zillow and Redfin, those are actually declining month over month. And, uh, so yeah, be very patient in this market. All right, now the next invest stock, we're looking at the story behind this question. A recession might be coming, and do you have a defensive strategy? Some analysts say that a recession is all but inevitable with the U.S. and investors should be playing defense in this kind of market. That story tomorrow, but for now, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and I'm ready to take your calls at 888-99-CHART. At this point, I think almost everyone has heard how generative AI promises to bring us to the next industrial revolution. AI is already shaping society with an impact on daily life that echoes the transformative significance of electricity or the internet. As we take steps to embrace the potential of generative AI, we need to remain vigilant with regard to its exploitability. This is where HackerOne comes in. HackerOne's AI Red Team addresses the novel challenges of AI safety and security for businesses that are launching new AI deployments. The HackerOne approach involves targeted offensive testing by harnessing the collective skills of ethical hackers who are proficient in AI and prompt hacking. In short, AI red teaming is the practice of stress testing AI models and deployments to make sure they can't be tricked into providing information beyond their intended use, and that security flaws can't be exploited to access confidential data 
or systems. HackerOne seamlessly integrates with your existing tools to enhance communication and collaboration across development, security, and IT teams. So, stay ahead of the game in the battle against cyber threats with HackerOne's attack resistance platform. Learn more at HackerOne.com. That's H-A-C-K-E-R-O-N-E.com, HackerOne.com. Each day, InvestTalk listeners submit their finance and investment questions via phone or email. Would you like your question to be put near the top of the list? Just take a minute or two to leave a review and rating for Invest Talk at iTunes. And be sure to include a brief question with your iTunes review comments. Hi, this is Nick from Topeka, Kansas, a longtime listener. Well, I appreciate your show very much. I learn a lot from it. I was wondering if you gentlemen could comment on Capital Federal Savings, ticker symbol CFFN. They're located here in Topeka. Whether or not you think they are currently a buy, a sell, or a hold, what would be your recommendation on that? And then maybe comment a little bit about the regional banking sector as a whole. I think those would be uh, very instructive for me. So thank you very much. All right, this is CFFN, Capital Federal Financial. And we said this about Bank of America, and it's, I would say, even worse for these smaller regional banks is that the higher cost of deposits and the losses that they have on these longer-term assets like treasuries, like mortgage-backed securities, et cetera, that so many of them bought during, you know, kind of during the pandemic and, and pre-pandemic, uh, they are stuck with big losses and they are struggling with profitability. Earnings last year were 62 cents, supposed to be 32 cents a share. This year, 21 cents a share. Next year, I think we are entering a phase of consolidation within the banking industry. And it's the big boys are going to eat up these little guys. And most of them are probably going to be at fire sale, fire sale prices or in receivership. And to me, based on the chart, with a relative strength of 10 and really plummeting, this looks to be headed more towards receivership. So in my mind, this is a clear sell. Yeah, I 100% agree. And I think you have to remember that in the wake of 2008, banks that were too big to fail became too bigger to fail, if you will. And then the other banks got ignored. So the problem within the regional banking system is the supervisory role of uh, the Federal Reserve and of the uh, banks within those specific Federal Reserve regions has pretty much broadly been ignoring a lot of these banks. So there, there can be systemic issues that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. So I 100% agree. I've said it a bunch right now. Banks, specifically regional banks, I would stay away. And don't focus on earnings with these no. banks no. because it's not about the quote-unquote earnings, the accounting metrics per se here. It's about the value of their underlying assets and the trajectory of their net interest margins going forward, which are becoming more and more negative. Correct. The core function of a bank is to hold deposits, try and earn money lending out those deposits. But when people come to get their deposits, you need to have the money for them. And for a lot of these banks, it's not certain that that's the case. Yeah. And they, this is what banks do. They borrow short, they lend long. Mm -hmm. But in this environment, it's expensive to borrow short and they've already lent long at very cheap rates so they can't increase that amount and the yield curve is inverted yeah and so 
it's not profitable in a lot of cases to even issue new loans. They have to do that at very exorbitant prices, and obviously the demand is not, not there. So uh, just follow the chart here. It is atrocious and is a clear sell, and this bank is probably, once again, going into uh, bankruptcy, receivership, acquisition at fire, fire sale prices, whatever you want to call it. It's probably going to be lower than wherever it is now. All right, now people take the time to leave an Invest Talk podcast review on iTunes. But I could thank them for the courtesy by getting to their questions quickly. Don in Beirut says, Justin seems to think Kiants was a decent robotics play a while back. I've been watching it come down for the past few months. What would be a good entry point? Now, this is Kiants. This is one of the best industrial names in Japan. It's a Japanese company. Price has uh, pulled back as of late. And they develop and sell factory automation sensors, machine vision systems, barcode readers, programmable logic controllers, laser markers, etc. Now, I think one of the issues here with their business near term is the fact that it's in Japan. So it's, uh, it's, it's far away from where companies are reshoring manufacturing here to uh, the U.S. Uh, and their business is just slowing. Uh, in general. Uh, let me look at their balance sheet. Do you see much about their balance sheet? What, what are you seeing over there, Luke? Uh, well, it's difficult because it is a Japanese company from what I can see. I, for example, have no information on any of the debt load of the company because yeah. it's just not provided. Yeah, it's always tough with these foreign names because it's not giving you – they don't have the same reporting requ requirements that uh, the NYC, the NASDAQ does. So you're not getting the same data here. Uh, now, technically, it's weak. I wouldn't be buying it right now. Uh, but this is a very good business long term. It's very profitable. Uh, but the trends right now are just too poor for me to get into it. Uh, back down. Let me pull up a longer term chart here if it wants to load. There we go. Back down around. I'm looking at a separate system. What level is this? 360? 360? That would be a level. That's a 377. That's not the level. I can't find the price because I can't pull it up on a different chart. Let me try something else there we go that worked all right the support level is down around 320 there we go 320 is the next major support level all right now let's make it two reviews in a row zach from minnesota says i've owned bwmx for a couple months now i want to hear your opinion on it i've been trying to get more exposure to mexico bwmx now i first i first will say i like that last comment getting more exposure to Mexico. I think Mexico is set up for an economic boom over the next decade plus due to reshoring or uh, reshoring manufacturing uh, here to North America. Their labor costs are, are very cheap and they have good demographics. In many instances, their, their labor costs are lower than in China. And so it just takes a, a level of investment to create the infrastructure that you have in, in China, which is, is difficult, but uh, I think it will happen. But so I like the investment in Mexico. Now what this company does, it sells homeware and house care cleaning products. It's called Betterware de Mexico. $600 million market cap, so very small, but the trends in the stock is very good. 98, 98 uh, relative strength rating. It's starting to pull back a bit. What do you see on the value there, Luke? 
I see that its price to book is a little bit inflated relative to its peers. It's trading at an eight. But its margins look pretty good. Its gross margin is 67%. Its long-term debt-to-equity looks fine. Looks like a fine company to me. My only comment is if you're trying to get some exposure to Mexico, um, I would tend to maybe stay away from Mexican small, small, small cap companies in this environment. You said $600 million market cap? Yeah. Yeah, and i say my biggest issue would be that – I want companies that are more directly tied into the CapEx boom that's likely to happen over Correct. the next decade in Mexico that will, will benefit better. I mean, sure, the consumer will improve in Mexico due to just simply more jobs, more economic activity. So they'll go buy their products. They have six categories, kitchen and food preservation, home solutions, bedroom, bathroom, laundry and cleaning, and tech and mobility. So there's just... It's going to do well, but I think there's better options. So it's a, it's a good company. Uh, I'm fine with it. It's pulling back a bit, uh, but I, I would look elsewhere within Mexico. All right. Thanks for the call. Now let's touch a bit on the American consumer. And we know that the consumer had a lot of checks sent to them during the pandemic to keep things afloat. People stopped spending because they couldn't in many cases. But the question now for most investors is how much money do they have left? And Luke, there's a lot of reports out there. Is there any report that you would trust the most that would tell you really what the consumer balance sheet looks like looks like right now? I think out of all of them, I would probably trust what's coming directly from the Federal Reserve. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's is based on changes in household assets and liabilities from banks and other sources. They're going to have a better lens writ large into the American consumer. One problem, however, is it's difficult in any of these reports to go from the aggregate level of what these savings are and then allocate across income groups where those savings are. Well, Bank of America tried to do that. And they said the median household saving and checking balance were up more than 40% relative to 2019 for low, medium, and high income households. So they try to do that. Obviously, it's Bank of America. They don't see what the other side of their balance sheet looks like Correct. for the most part, right? Because most of those consumers are borrowing from uh, other companies besides just Bank of America. But at least they see the deposits. Uh, but are they also seeing the the money that flows to money market accounts, high yield savings accounts at other banks so that they can get better yields than they're getting at Bank of America? So they're not capturing that side either. So it is definitely hard to say, but I think it's pretty obvious that there's still some dry powder left uh, based on almost any measure. Now that might be one quarter. But it might also be a couple of years. And uh, the the main point I got from this report is that they're not really digging into it in a big way because unemployment rate's very low. So are you really they're, – they're not spending in a huge way. The, the savings rate is relatively low. Um I don't know. What picture are you getting about the consumer from all these reports? No, I agree. I think the important point is that it's still up from pre-pandemic levels of 2019. I think a lot of that is as a result of the labor market, right? If you take a look at over the past three years where those wage gains are, it's the antithesis of where it had hit 
where it had been since the financial crisis, mm-hmm. where rather than most of the wage gains being at the top, you actually saw the bottom 40% of the country getting most of those Which wage we know gains. is inflationary. Which we know is inflationary. But at the same time, that is also allowing them not to dip into those savings. So I think what's really happening is you have this competing narrative of, okay, there is potential financial stress on the horizon and people not wanting to dip into those savings on the event that there is a recession, it is more moderate and not as mild as some expect it to be. So I think the general picture I'm getting from here is not necessarily that this is going to bolster consumer spending in the next couple quarters, but rather that consumers may have a little bit more runway should things go south. And this goes to what I wanted to speak about is – the fact that people do have a lot of money in money market accounts, I think there's record amount uh, in money market accounts right now, people chasing after those uh, those high yields, is are higher rates now inflationary? And I say that because if you think about what the goal of higher rates are, is to choke off demand. Focuses on the demand side of the equation. Doesn't focus on supply. Doesn't even really... Look at supply only into as much as it feeds into inflation. But in this environment where people are locked into 3% mortgages, they have a good amount of cash on the sideline, and every quarter point increase in the Fed's funds rate means they're just earning more on that cash. And yes, it hurts in the, uh, for the marginal home buyer, but we've been stuck at kind of the same level, low level of. Uh, home purchases for over a year now hasn't been plumbing to new lows, even though rates continue to go up. And on the other side, you have the cost of capital for corporations going up. So back in 2012, 2013, when rates are zero, what did shale companies do? They drilled, drill, baby, drill. This cost of capital was low. So the corollary to that is now the cost of capital is high. Are they going to invest in new supply? And now you've seen for three months in a row, shale oil production is down. Is that because the cost of capital is too high? So to me, what is interesting here is that I actually see higher rates as choking off more supply than it's actually choking off new demand. I think you can make an argument that rates are inflationary near term. But the end result of choking off the supply and business investment being choked off, we've said choked a lot in the past three minutes, business investment being hurt by higher rates is reduction of labor force. Eventually. Eventually, no, but that's what I'm saying is near term, yes, rates can be inflationary. But in the medium term, when businesses are reducing and the fact that rates are inflationary right now is because of the strong labor market, in the midterm, it's doing its job and it's once again, choking off the economy. Well, maybe the answer is that the variable lag of inflation is even long, or uh, of uh, monetary policy is even longer than it usually is because of that. Because those moves in interest rates near term, and the market always adjusts, right? Mar- market kind of front, lo- front runs those, those moves. Uh, those, that impact is not really doing anything to demand in the near term. So uh, I'm, I argue... Now, we're in an environment because of the debt being at the sovereign level and in corporations that it's actually inflationary. All right, let's go to Carl in Oceanside. He wants to talk about TLT. Yes, uh, I'm wondering how does the 20-year bond work? And I was thinking eventually the 
rate will go down again. Now the uh, TLT is very low. It is about uh, 98 or 89. If I would buy it and it goes lower and I hang on, eventually it will go up again. <laughs> and in well, the meantime, they pay 3% uh, dividend. Uh, well, it pays more than that. This is the TLT. This is a 30-year, 20-plus-year uh, treasury bond. It's basically a 30-year treasury uh, ETF. And it is sinking because it's the most long-duration asset there is, except for zero-coupon uh, uh, bonds. But it is a very long-duration asset. And it is uh, not a name in, in a rising rate environment that you want to own and you never want to buy something because oh it's just going to go up again later because it certainly couldn't what if what if the 10 year or the 30 year excuse me continues to go a lot lot higher right now the thir the 30 year is only at 4.7% 4.7% if you go back zoom back out the the 30 year was a high let's see 2000 and, or 1995 when they issued it it was around eight percent so what's who says that the 30-year can't go to eight percent yeah bond yields and and the dollar are just in a resilient uptrend until that turns around you should not be buying this exactly stay away from tlt all right this is invest talk i'm justin klein with luke guerrero and we are here to help you achieve your own version of financial freedom and our work continues after this final break so get your questions in now at 888-99 chart The stock market is volatile. It's constantly changing. So how are you positioned? Is your portfolio properly balanced or are you taking unnecessary risks? You can get guidance anytime for free if you go to investtalk.com and take the brief Riskalyze quiz. Hey, Justin or Steve, how are y'all doing? This is Andrew from Atlanta. Just trying to contact you guys about A6, AS. IX, which is Advan 6 Incorporated. It's a common stock. I own it and it's down. I'm trying to see what's your outlook on this. If you could take a look at the financials and let me know where you see this stock going in the future. I try to hold this stuff as long as I can. So um, I'm a long term investor. Appreciate the show. Thanks for all that you do. Have a great day. All right, looking at Advan 6, ASIX is a symbol. And this is uh, an interesting company because it has a few different businesses. It makes nylon and polymer, polymer resin as well as fertilizers, which is kind of an odd mix there. But their, their nylon and their, and their polymer resins go into things like electronic components, automotive components, carpets, sports apparel, fishing nets, food and industrial packaging. And they, have, they also make ammonium sulfate fertilizers and other uh, chemical intermediaries. So it's about a billion dollar market cap, 841 million, so just shy of that. Modest debt levels, pretty nicely profitable right now, about a 15% return on equity, five-year average is around 19%, so that's good. I like those profitability metrics. The technicals, though, leave something to be to desired. Only are 24 on the relative strength measure and below all the major moving averages. Uh, what do you see, Luke? Do you think this is a good business long-term? You know, they have benefited from some pretty great growth over the past five years, and that's reflective in, in the price action. It's not valued 
crazy relative to its assets. I mean, it's trading pretty much at its book value, one mm-hmm. one to one point oh eight rather, and it's a profitable company. Um, it does tend to act in line with the market. It's it's five year beta is is point nine eight. I don't see anything wrong with the business. They for five years if it have been on a sustained uptrend until recently, could be some consolidation. Yeah, see, my issue is that there's a lot of reversion to the mean, it looks like, from the underlying numbers. The free cash flow, trailing 12 months, is now down to 70 million, where it peaked at 184 million at the end of last year. So that's an issue to me. And pre pandemic, their free cash flow was in decline even before the, it was actually negative pre pandemic. So their business was, was struggling. Uh, I like the fertilizer business, but that doesn't seem to be the majority of their, of their revenue. Uh, so I don't like the technicals and I don't like the new trend in that underlying cash flow generation in their business. So, uh, um, I, I think near term it could get a bounce, but uh, I'm passing on this. Thanks for the call. All right. Let's lastly touch a bit on, Crude oil and oil, whether you look at the WTI number, which is around $93, $94 per barrel, Brent crude is around $97 per barrel. Either one, they're, they're approaching $100 per barrel once again. And this is on the back of an EIA number that showed U.S. commercial crude oil inventories fell 2.2 million barrels from the previous week, further tightening an already tight supply situation. And this is after the world's largest producers announced supply cuts middle of middle of this year in june right so that was saudi arabia and and russia uh so the question here luke is how is the fed going to deal with this they like to focus a lot on the core numbers which strip out food and inflate food and uh energy but how how much can they ignore the continuing rise in in prices up 30 percent since june well i don't know if the issue is whether or not they will ignore energy and the prices and cost of energy and inflation related to energy. I think the broader problem is how can the Fed seek to control inflation when the exogenous variables are so overwhelming? And when you say exogenous variables, you're talking... The uh, cost of energy, right? So what effect can they even have, regardless of if they're even looking at it? If they're making a decision, okay, energy, the price of energy has gone up so much, inflation is still high, we have to raise rates, that's the secondary consideration. The primary consideration should be, can raising rates even do anything? Yeah, I I, I agree. And as I said before, is raising rates actually inflationary because it's choking off uh, investment in new supply? And my last question is, when I don't think it's if I think it's when when will Russia weaponize their crude supply and say we're going to cut two million barrels a day four million barrels from the market and that would increase uh, that would increase prices dramatically in the near term I would say roughly one day before we stop sanctioning Venezuela <laughs> something like that <laughs> we shall see but uh, this is a trend that I don't think will stop I think we're going to head well above a hundred dollars per barrel. All right, I'm Justin Klein with Luke Guerrero, and this completes another Invest Talk program. Steve and I thank you for listening, and we encourage you to tell your friends and family about our free podcast downloads, which you can find anytime at iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play. And be sure to rate and review. And it's official, we've now surpassed the 56 million download mark. Thanks to you since it all began. Independent thinking, shared success. This is Invest Talk. Good night. Invest Talk is a trademark of KPP Financial. Because of the nature of the interactive dialogue inherent in the format of this program, 
It's important for the listener to understand that not all comments made will apply to them. Specifically, nothing said shall be taken to be investment advice, or shall statements on this program be considered an offer to buy or sell security. Because such advice is rendered solely on an individual basis and at times will require that the investor review a prospectus before investing. InvestTalk is a copyrighted program of Klein, Pavlis, and Peasley Financial, a registered investment advisor firm which retains all rights.